Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new year and episode 58 of the Day Zero podcast. We're back from our break. Uh, this week, we have a bit of a packed episode. Uh, today, we have some news to catch up on that happened in the tail end of December, such as the Apple versus Corellium lawsuit updates, uh, some 3DS exploits, a P0 post about exploitation of Android, and some other stuff. So let's kick it off with the remote chaos experience. So with the world on fire, unfortunately, conferences were the first thing to go in 2020 and will be the last things to come back in the future. Um, and with that, CCC became RC3 this year with remote conference talks. So I was able to catch a few of the talks, um, mostly like yesterday and over the weekend, uh, because at the time, you know, the holidays were busy. Um, I watched the hacking the phone and iPhone talk, uh, escape the Mac OS sandbox, uh, hacking the Nintendo game and watch and the CIA versus WikiLeaks talk, which was probably the most popular talk of the conference, uh, to be honest, uh, judging off of view count and stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, that was the only one, like, if you, at least for me, when I went onto YouTube and just searched RC3, that was the talk that came off, was the CIA versus WikiLeaks one. Yeah, um, it's probably the first politics-based talk I've seen in CCC, because usually I just kind of tune those out, but uh, that one was pretty interesting. And they've had some interesting ones, like, I know Snowden's talked there before and stuff, too, so, like, usually they have some, some good ones. Yeah. So I think uh, the hacking the phone and iPhone one was uh, kind of interesting. It was about like protocol fuzzing and and uh, and fuzzing iPhone, you know, the interface and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it talks about the nuances of protocol fuzzing and how annoying it is to kind of get running. Um, the Escape the Mac OS Sandbox one, I thought was probably the coolest technical talk I saw. Um, they dived into like security mechanisms, so entitlements, uh, code signing, some some stuff we've talked about on the podcast before, but also like some new stuff like the hardened runtime, which is uh, tries to protect against process injection, library integrity checks, um, or signature checks, and they talk about some of the ways around those mechanisms, um, such as you know privilege escalating through root updater apps. I think we covered one of those issues this year with Adobe Reader, um, stealing entitlements by injecting into Apple non sandbox processes. Uh, they didn't go too much into details about that because I think there's still zero days. But um, yeah, I think that was a pretty interesting talk and gave some cool iOS background information. Um, did you watch the hacking the Nintendo game and watch? Because I figured that would be right up your alley, Z, because I know you're into some of the game hacking and stuff like that. You know, I didn't. I saw that one game passed around a lot, though, but um, it was on my list, but I only made it through three of the videos I plan to watch. Oh, okay. So that was talking about one of the newer retro consoles that Nintendo released, the Game & Watch. Uh, it's like a little Game Boy-looking thing. Um, and what was interesting about that was it actually had some security features. Uh, it used AES. It had active read protection. Uh, like, if you tried to dump the Flash or whatever, it would wipe the contents. Um, so he talks in that video about dumping the Flash and firmware and uh, even getting homebrew running. So I thought that was kind of a cool talk. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the CIA versus WikiLeaks one, though, because I think that was the one I found the most engaging um, in, in terms of non-technical talks. I, I so found that... it... Oh, no, I thought it sounded more interesting than it actually was. It seemed a lot more like a confirmation of what you'd kind of expect. The overt surveillance, break-ins, hardware bugs is more or less, I think, what you kind of expect when you're thinking about CIA or just nation-state. I mean, he associates a lot of it with CIA, I mean, 
maybe there's a fair chance no mi5 or other groups could have been involved especially when he's talking about co-op uh clear cooperation with um uk government uh officials like the border guards and stuff that seems more likely to me to be uh non-cia because of cf well i mean there could be cooperation between allies i'm not saying it can't happen but I mean, he asserts that everything kind of goes to the CIA, and he points out the fact that he asserts everything there and is probably kind of seeing, just seeing things at times. Seeing ghosts sometimes. Um, so yeah, I, I think the main reason with the CIA was because of the Vault 7 leaks, and uh, he talks about Mike Pompeo a lot, and the hostility towards WikiLeaks, like uh, he made a public statement calling them a hostile intelligence service. Um, but yeah, what I found interesting were some of the observed patterns uh, that he had that made him believe he was initially being targeted, like uh, the encrypted connection issues and PGP keys suddenly not working. And then, like you were talking about, going later into the more, you know, hard evidence, I guess, with the physical bug being found in the crypto phone. Um, what I found interesting about that was some of them did seem a little bit weird to point out. Um, I also do want to point out Mean Machine 1, thank you for the Tier 1 sub. So, like following, uh, he he mentioned at one point in the talk that he was getting followed by a car on one-way streets, which I thought was kind of funny because uh, if you're on a one-way street, then you're obviously going to get followed. Um, but what I found weird was there was the hard evidence, like the bug and and the lock being broken, but some of them did seem like uh, they were a little bit too obvious for what would you would expect to be more subtle from somebody like the CIA. Um, such as like the lock breaking there, which he does point out to be fair, but uh, I was just interested, like interested if you had any you would, opinions so on how much do you think that was actually, was actually spying. That was actually some that I found somewhat interesting because I recently read a book by Tom Marcus called I Spy, My Life in the MI5. Um, and he was part of a surveillance unit in the MI5. And I'll be honest, I have some questions about the claims that he makes. Um, I do so too. I, I'm not um to be clear i'm talking about tom marcus have you read that book also oh no i thought you meant the, the okay. claims that were made in the talk so um well i'll get to that but i just wanted to point out like i've read the book and it actually kind of ties in a little bit with what we read about him saying the cia does and possibly if mi5 was involved kind of the same thing um so he talks a little bit about their trade crafting uh some of the decisions that they make while doing surveillance and it does kind of align with at least some of the shade that he would throw towards uh like the cia and other surveillance operations uh to see those uh, mistakes being made now like i said i have some doubts about his book and his content there's no real way to verify it so I mean, some of it's a little bit unbelievable. When it comes to this, I mean, there's a good chance that he's seeing ghosts. I mean, most people, as they start paying attention to those things, are just going to start seeing things when there's nothing. Like, everything becomes suspicious. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get trapped in that mindset. It is. It's, it's very easy to, you know, as soon as you start paying attention to something, you just start noticing it more and more. And anything out of the ordinary suddenly becomes a suspicious thing rather than just kind of the natural times where something is simply out of the ordinary. He -hmm. does mention the potential of them kind of being overt about things simply to make their presence known rather than actually needing to follow them. 
and I think that's a fair perspective. I don't really know enough to comment on whether or not that's accurate. I, I found it interesting, regardless. I mean, it's the things that he's noticed, regardless of whether or not he can back it up by uh, actual operational or yeah, actual operations by the CIA or whatever other group. Yeah, and in all fairness, he he totally points it out, like even at the at the front end of the talk, that he's going to be biased because this is all from his perspective. Um, there's there's no he doesn't have evidence for all of these things. That they're for sure attached to the CIA or anything. But yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting talk. Um, the intimidation tactics kind of seem like they would be up the CIA's alley, but yeah, the you know they're they're not going to come out and say anything obviously so it's all we're only going to get the the one perspective but I, I thought it was an interesting talk and i think it's worth checking out if you're interested at all in like the intelligence community and stuff like that yeah i mean like i said it felt like a lot of it was more or less of what he would end up expecting maybe not the apparent mistakes or potentially intended mistakes if they were intending to kind of make themselves known but i don't feel like there's anything kind of groundbreaking being said there uh, so I also listened to the fuzzing the phone in the iPhone talk that you mentioned. Um, and I just, I don't have much to add on beyond what uh, you've already mentioned, but I will just kind of say, like, it is a pretty approachable talk, uh, just in terms of, like, if a beginner were to come and listen to it. I found myself skipping over some fairly significant chunks of it just because it talks about a lot of foundations of fuzzing, mutation, um, as Spectre mentioned, getting started, like getting the fuzzing up and running, some options for that. But it was still interesting to see the talk because it focuses on fuzzing kind of the area between the baseband and kind of the messages going between the baseband chip to the actual iPhone itself, rather than just fuzzing the baseband protocol itself. It kind of focuses on the messages in between there. So going from having... Uh, own the baseband chip to trying to get onto the phone itself from there. So, I mean, I found that aspect interest sounds like it hasn't been fuzzed too much. Um, so, like, it was a very approachable, approachable discussion or approachable talk. So, I mean, you can check out if you're interested in that, but I didn't find, again, too much in that to be new, but it was well laid out. Uh, the other talk that I've listened to that I don't think you did was the Hacking German Elections one. Yeah, I didn't um, check that one out. That one, of course, kind of appealed to me. I, I thought it was going to be about a different attack on German elections. Uh, this one, it, it essentially was just a broken web app and insecure storage for transferring data. Not as interesting as it sounds like, because it's just like, yeah, they this one little election used this really broken like application for doing the vote counting um and if you've listened uh to this podcast for any amount of time you've probably heard me talk about uh fully verifiable voting and like i i'm a proponent of doing continued research into some of the electronic voting options that are fully verifiable this system that they were looking at was not even attempting to be verifiable and was nothing in line with that. And it's one of the things I hate because we keep getting all of these really poorly written, poorly developed voting apps, I'll say, that just undermine trust in any sort of electronic voting because you keep seeing these absolutely terrible things that just don't even try 
to implement like any of the research that's coming out about securely doing the voting. It's like, nope, let's ignore that and let's just implement like your standard CRUD application and call it a vote and use it for voting. And like, that's the wrong way to go about it. it just undermines everything. So now people just throw out all electronic voting as worthless because all you've seen is, is terrible stuff and this is no exception. Yeah, the, the talk, like, I mean, it's interesting over the fact that it's voting, but it was some fairly standard web app issues, like no authenticate or not, uh, sorry, broken access controls, issues like that. It's one of those uh, one bad apple spoils a bunch uh, type Well, situations. there's been more than one bad apple. They're pretty much all okay, bad multiple apples. multiple bad apples. Like, oh, um, so, like, I completely <laughs> agree. Like, we're not at a place to use any sort of electronic voting, but I don't think the research should just be tossed out because everybody has been doing it so poorly. Um, you know, shout out to Election Guard SDK from Microsoft, um, at least making an attempt to get in there with something verifiable, open source, and available. Yeah. So if I had to recommend one technical talk and one non-technical talk, uh, non-technical, I'd say the CIA versus uh, WikiLeaks one. And the technical, I'd say probably escape the macOS sandbox. Um, Apple stuff is always really interesting to see stuff on. Because um, usually outside of P0, you, you don't really see a ton of stuff on it. So, yeah, I, I love conference talks that are related to Apple, and, and especially because they're kind of at the top of the pyramid in terms of security, at least at the moment. So I do want to get into a bit of a meta discussion. Um, some of the observations I noticed just across the talks in general. Um, I think the remote conference style had both positives, but also some negatives uh, attached to it. Now, obviously, it's, it's not like they had a choice this year about going remote versus non-remote that's an I, I think there could still be things taken away possibly for future conferences that might have to go remote into this year or even just uh if someone wants to do like a remote thing in the future even when it isn't required and the world settles back down because <clears throat> i think there's some cool aspects to it that add value um so in terms of positives the production quality was kind of uh surprised me it was really good um i think i'm not 100 percent sure that some of the talks were pre-recorded and not done live. Uh, the reason I say that is because while they did have some live Q&A, um, some of them weren't in the video or you could tell the setting was different, like the presenter was wearing different clothing and stuff like that. Um, and I think that that's actually a good thing in a way because it led to the talks being more synced to the visuals and it probably made the presenters, especially the new presenters, a lot less nervous. And the, the audio quality was a lot better than you would typically see in conference talks, uh, at least in the limited talks that I did watch. Um, the demos were also clean and smooth. There was no demo god issues. Um, and because the talks weren't as time constrained as they usually would be in a physical setting, they didn't have to rush through the talks or, or cut, cut out slides. You'll notice sometimes in conference talks, if they're hitting like the getting close to the 40 minute mark, they'll get to a slide and they'll just be like, oh, I'm just going to skip this for now because I want to get to the demo or something like that. Um, that didn't really seem to happen here because there wasn't limited time at the venue because there was no venue. Um, that said, because the talks weren't time constrained, some of them did feel like they were really long winded to me. Um, some of the talks were like 90 minutes, which I think is a bit too long for a conference talk. Uh, I say that meanwhile, our podcasts are like 90 minutes, but for a conference talk, it, it feels long. Yeah, there are, there are usually like 
different tracks at some conferences that will be longer or shorter yeah, i see some of these running uh the longest one i'm seeing on the side here is up to like 95 minutes 96 minutes and the shortest was at like 30 some 31 37 ish yeah uh, so definitely some variation in there uh one here that's 13 but i'm assuming that's not actually uh not one of the main talks or it's quite short 100 180 minutes i guess that's hacker jeopardy i mean they usually stream these so the streaming aspect of the conference at least is something they've had some familiar with mm -hmm. um on a whole though i mean i think they they were well prepared to do a remote conference uh given that background that they have always streaming it but I don't know, I feel like DEFCON kind of did the, like, I guess you could say the culture or social experience behind it, at least somewhat well or better. Yeah, here I don't think they really attempted that at all. It was mostly just the talks. Um, yeah, or at least that's all I really saw. I mean, perhaps I just missed out on more to it, but I do think with conferences going remote, that part is kind of important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the, the big thing with CCC when I went was the, you know, the networking aspect of it, which obviously is going to be limited when you're remote, but that's that's most of the fun behind it, not so much the talks, although CCC talks usually are uh, pretty good, too. Um, you do miss that energy or feel of a real conference talk, though. I don't know why. Even though the production quality feels better with remote, knowing there's a crowd there and and like hearing the questions being shouted out and stuff does have like a certain vibe to it that I, I kind of miss. I mean, presenting in person to a crowd is different than just uh, presenting to your webcam. Uh, it's it's yeah. a lot harder to just present to your webcam. You don't have any feedback whatsoever when you're doing that besides maybe chat going by. Whereas when yeah. you've got a crowd there, even though it's minimal, you're still able to kind of feed off of that a little bit. I do feel like there were a lack of uh, a lot of really good talks this year. Not to say there weren't any. Uh, the few that we talked about, I think, were were cool. And uh, like I said, there were positives. But I feel like in past years, there were more interesting talks that I found really fascinating. Whereas this year, there was only really like one or two that I thought were really cool, especially after I finished watching them. So I don't know if that's because people who would have presented more interesting talks just didn't want to or couldn't this year because of the pandemic. Which would be totally fair, uh, by the way. Um, or if it was maybe just a bit of a slower year. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you feel the same way on that, Z. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I need more time to go through more of the talks, actually. Form that, okay, and like I said, I've only been through like three of them. There are definitely more I'd like to see. I kind of wish the Crypto Wars one here was in English. Uh, but there are some other talks that do at least seem somewhat interesting. Spot the surveillance. Um, there's a VPN one. Uh, very pwnable network. Like, th there are definitely some that I'm still interested to see. Yeah, I mean, I think part of why I'm saying uh, there seemed to be a lack of uh, talks this year is usually in the past we've gotten some windows talks and maybe a few like one or two ios or mac os talks here there's no windows talks there's one ios talk which was the hacking the phone and iphone um it just seemed like there was less uh like real world target talks and they were more political this year i guess 
Um, but you know, maybe maybe that's just a like a personal view. I'm sure there's other people out there who who really like more of the talks this year than I did. So, yeah, that's fair. Um, I think we can move on to uh, Apple versus Corellium, uh, unless you have any last minute thoughts on uh, CCCZ. No, I think we can move on. All right. So uh, the Apple versus Corellium case had some major updates. Uh, Corellium came out with a bit of a victory here. Um, for those not familiar with Corellium, it's it's essentially a service that allows you to emulate iOS and is used a lot in the iOS security community. So of course, Apple doesn't like it. Um, so Z, I'll let you summarize this because I know you were talking with some of the members in our Discord about this uh, when it happened and, and you came up with a, a really good summary for them. Yeah, well, first I'll mention that we did actually talk about this case uh, back in episode 16. So this isn't the first time that we're talking about Apple versus Corellium. And as you said, Corellium, you know, can be summed up as like this iOS VM uh, and kind of enabling security research, like you debug the kernel, letting you kind of get a lot more information out than you normally would from just your standard iPhone. Uh, so Apple brought this case asserting that it's a violation of their copyright and that Corellium is also violating the DMCA's anti-circumvention laws which is basically um, even if the DMCA offers some some protection, some cases where you're allowed to violate copyright for security research for whatever, you still can't circumvent any sort of technological protection. So that's like you can't uh, break DRM, for example, under DMCA. Uh, but it does allow some security research as long as you're not circumventing those other things. So what happened here with this case is that um, both of these were brought up for summary judgment, which is basically the where there is no dispute of the actual facts of the case. A judge can simply go and say from these facts, you know, here's the ruling on the base of the law um, and it doesn't go before a jury. It's just here are the facts and ends up with that. So on that, this, as we said, there was the Apple making the claim that this was a violation of copyright and what they were doing, arguing that Basically, Corellium is just repackaging their copyright material into a new medium. Whereas Corellium, of course, would say that their product's fair use, it's transformative, they're doing something new with this. Um, they're adding significant features. The judge agreed um, and gave the summary judgment in Corellium's favor that th this is fair use. Um, you know, their work is transformative, falls under fair use, and they're okay for that. Um, and I think that's where a lot of media outlets kind of ran with, you know, the judge saying it's fair use, but the DMCA one, I think, was the was the one sitting on a little bit more of a uh, sketchy foundation. Um, Apple obviously is asserting that they at a minimum uh, violate like the validation checks, the secure boot process, the trust cache, um, and buddy check was the last one. Uh, Corellium basically says those IPSW files are publicly accessible for anybody to grab, therefore it should be fair use. Basically, the judge came down that there was a, or sorry, the judge came down saying that Corellium's attempt to just use a blanket defense as its fair use would effectively render part of the DMCA meaningless, where it talks about how, you know, fair use isn't a defense for, uh, circumventing some te uh, technological protections. Uh, so as there was a kind of dispute of the facts on that matter, that will just go to a jury trial. So this didn't really set 
set the precedent and maybe appears to when you think of Corellium winning this case. Um, unfortunately, because the DMCA one is still ongoing and will just go on to a jury trial, the judge just refused to offer a summary on it, a summary judgment on it. Uh, we're kind of left with kind of the obvious. I, I feel like uh, at least the first one, the copyright fair use was somewhat obvious and it's the DMCA one that kind of matters and that's the one that's going to carry on to further trial. And it seems to be something that uh, the media outlets were missing. Uh, a lot of the articles that I saw that were talking about it just talked about the fact that the copyright aspect was thrown out or uh, was thrown out. And they, they didn't really touch on the fact that the DMCA one still had to go to uh, to, to jury. So it's not like a complete victory for Corellium here. There's still more to to come out from this. Um, and, and like you were saying, I think the DMCA one was the one that was kind of more important anyway, because it had the most chance of Apple succeeding in it. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's not a complete victory, but Corellium did win something out of this. Um, is there, did you see any like uh, planned date or anything of when that jury is supposed to be uh, conducted for the DMCA portion? I didn't, didn't look sorry. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I didn't really either, to be fair, that's why I asked, so... Um, yeah, we'll have to keep a lookout on that and uh, and have a have a third part to talk about this. Hopefully, when it's when it's all resolved, I, I'm hoping it goes in Corellium's favor because um, yeah, I, I like I think it it adds a lot of value to the security research community and our our friends over in the iOS community. But on the other hand, I I can kind of see where Apple has a leg to stand on there with it circumventing you know the secure boot and and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I can see it going either way, but I'm kind of hoping it goes towards Corellium, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, out of chat, I believe could just ask, what did they circumvent exactly? So Apple ends up arguing uh, that at a minimum, Corellium circumvented the authentication server, validation check, the secure boot chain, buddy program, and trust cache. I couldn't go into the details on how they did all of those, but I assume if there's any sort of callback code in iOS that they would have disabled or like the authentication server check that would be an example of them circumventing it. Um, unfortunately, with the way DMCA goes, like circumventing is extremely broad. It comes kind of similar with my complaints with CFAA and unauthorized access and how it's been interpreted. Similar on DMCA, like some very minimal things can be considered circumventing. Like there's an example of a DRM that... It, it changed the magic bytes at the start of a file. I can't remember what the file formats were, but it effectively just changed like the first four bytes to the name of their company. Um, or probably more than four bytes if it was the name of the company, but changed like the first few bytes and that's all. So you could just couldn't open it in like VLC or some media player. But if you went and put the magic number back to what it should be, it worked. That was considered breaking the DRM, just changing those few bytes. Um, even though, like, you could see the rest of the header for, like, whatever the actual format was, it was still a violation uh, and considered circumvention. So, like, circumventing has been pretty widely interpreted or vaguely interpreted. And another example there that they might be highlighting, too, is the fact that secure boot is what ensures the integrity of, like, the debugging functionality. So in the, in the bootloader or whatever, they will enable or or flip certain bits uh to enable whether or not debugging is allowed on the phone 
and usually on a physical phone, unless you have a, a boot exploit like uh, like Checkmate, uh, you wouldn't be able to touch those bits. So you wouldn't be able to enable debugging functionality like that. Whereas with Corellium, where it's it's emulated, they can kind of circumvent that. So that could be another thing where they're they're talking about circumvention of uh, of like the secure boot process. So yeah, um, but we're gonna have to wait for more updates on the on the DMCA side of things. So the Great Suspender, um, for those not familiar, it's a Chrome extension for suspending tabs to lower memory usage, which is very useful on something like Chrome, which eats a ton of memory. And it's very useful for people like me who open lots of tabs and don't close them. Um, you know, I, I'm totally guilty of that. Uh, so I actually used this extension a long while ago. And unfortunately, this extension ended up getting handed off and sold to a different maintainer, I believe in October. Uh, if I remember correctly. Um, oh, no, it might have been even earlier than that. Uh, it was announced that it was being handed over in June, but I can't remember the exact date that it was handed over. Anyway, uh, that different maintainer ended up being a malicious maintainer. Uh, apparently, they tried to sneak in code that would connect to a seemingly benign server and execute code from it. Um, so taking a quote out of the issue opened up. Um, using the Chrome Web Store version of the extension without disabling tracking will execute code from an untrusted party on your computer with the power to modify any and all websites that you see. Um, the fact that disabling tracking still works is irrelevant given the fact that most of the 2 million users of this extension have no idea that that option even exists. Um, so I wanted to bring this up as both a PSA, uh, that if you're using Great Suspender, you should probably stop and remove it. Um, and I wanted to have a bit of a discussion on where the blame could and should fall, uh, because I think we can agree that the new maintainer is seemingly malicious here and isn't in the right. Um, what I wanted to talk about more, though, was what about the original maintainer that sold it to this person? Um, do you think they bear any blame for for not like vetting this new maintainer or selling it to somebody they don't trust or, or anything along those lines? Z? I mean, we don't necessarily know what level of due diligence they performed, what level of trust exists there, if that trust was just violated or if they're just like, you know, whatever, you're offering me money and taking it. That said, the fault lies with the actual attacker. Um, unless they knowingly uh, were selling it, like knowing it was going to be uh, used maliciously, I don't think it's too fair to uh, put the blame on the old maintainer for having sold it off. Uh, yeah, exactly. As uh, Beep Boop Beep mentions, oh, Chad, no, because people lie. Um, trying to put the blame on the maintainer, I think, just comes down to trying to blame the victim of this. Um, okay. Unless we have any evidence that they were actually, like, knowingly involved with it. Obviously, that would change things. But in the absence of that, I wouldn't want to jump to trying to blame them. So I guess where I have uh, an interesting question that I'm kind of toiling with, I, I, I don't really, I'm kind of on the fence with it, is... In general, I think you shouldn't restrict people on what they do with their code and if they sell it or if they hand off the rights to somebody else. But where it gets interesting is when it's something like a Chrome extension, which gets automatically updated and pushed through the store like that. I feel like there's an additional level of responsibility there because it is so easy for people to get screwed, like masses of people to get screwed if somebody sells and something like this happens, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly to the original maintainer. I don't know if, if there could be something put in place to try to prevent this type of thing in the future. Like maybe 
well, add-ons think... are disabled. Like Google could enable a functionality in the web store that marks if it's been transferred ownership, and if it has, maybe the extension gets disabled. It's so and hard everyone to, has to know. Enable it again. It's, I don't know. It's so hard to be able to tell if something's been transferred. Exactly. Like that's that. that's where said, it kind of falls apart. An ideal case is going to be that, um, you know, a fork when a maintainer wants a stop, they don't hand it over, but a fork starts. You know, somebody yeah. starts a fork, and the problem is, or at least a problem, I think, with that, and while that, that is an ideal case, I think that the maintainer would just stop, fork would happen, people would all move on to the fork. Obviously, you lose people who aren't really paying attention, who just use kind of the more known one. The other issue is if you actually look like the fork list, so the great suspender here has 385 forks. And if we actually just look at this list, like there's no way to know what fork is actually worth looking at. Like you can maybe say like, okay, if a fork has a fork and like having forks of your forks is maybe worthwhile. And there are some that are adding like the dash no track. But I think it would be nice if there's a better way to find out. Um, apparently, I'm being told to look at the network graph, which, in fairness, might actually give you more information. Um, so I might have to eat my words a little bit on that. But it does still seem like a little bit of an issue of being able to know exactly what work is a good choice to move on to. Um, yeah, the network graph at least looks like it has a bit more information to draw from i i'd still say like the fork is is an ideal situation but it's also kind of less convenient obviously you lose the momentum of the original project yeah um, and users just aren't really paying attention i mean when it comes down to the transfer though like companies change hands all the time for example and i mean a lot of extensions are run by companies so when a company changes ownership should their extension be disabled or something or have a warning all of a sudden? Probably not. And I think it's got to be the same case. I think I think this is more on the hands of like Google to vet their own store to not allow like executing just code from a server, which I don't think is actually um, allowed by Google's terms. Like I believe all of your primary code needs to be within the extension. So that might be a violation there. Mm, yeah, that, that's a fair angle as well. And somebody pointed that out in chat. It's on Google to vet what's in their extension store. Yeah, that, that's a fair point as well. Um, when it came to like warning or disabling the extension when ownership changed his hands, um, I, I didn't really think that was a, an ideal or, or even a feasible solution. It was just something that I kind of thought up on the spot because this is a this is kind of a, a tricky issue to to tackle really. Um, there was another quote I wanted to pull out of the issue, which was that the original maintainer uh, responded to the threat. Um, however, he hasn't yet clarified what his relationship or basis of trust with the new maintainer is, nor has he explained why the initial post mentions a purchase. Um, the reason I wanted to pull that out was, do you think that is something that's a fair ask um, for an open source project to ask what the relationship is between the old maintainer and the new maintainer? Or do you think that's something that should be under I mean, like privacy, I guess. No, it's a fair ask, but I think it's also up to the maintainer just to share that or not. Like that's kind of their choice, especially when this isn't. As far as I'm aware, this isn't like a commercial entity. Uh, I don't they don't have so. any sort of shareholders that they're beholden to or something. I mean, like they're afraid to share what information they want. I'm 
course it would be nice to kind of know more but at the same time it doesn't actually tell us anything new we already know that the new maintainers malicious knowing that they're uh were or are a friend or not doesn't really change that too much yeah it's not really relevant anymore i guess um because i mean even if it is that they were a friend well it could be that the friend just violated their trust or it could be that they became friends actually with the intent of trying to do this like maybe maybe not but i mean it doesn't change too much in my opinion yeah basically all in all uh the great suspender is as kind of it's it's kind of became a shit show so if you have that extension you should probably uh get rid of it um, i haven't had it enabled for a long time i think i've had it disabled for like a year so luckily this issue doesn't impact me but um yeah, I mean, this this has potentially been an issue for months now, so might be worth uh, checking on things and re-verifying your security and stuff like that, and obviously removing the extension. All right, so uh, keeping on the, dra the drama chain, we have a uh, HTML injection in Atlassian's Bitbucket with an interesting story around it. Um, I'm sure some of you have probably seen or used Bitbucket before. It, it's a Git repo host, kind of like GitLab. Um, the, the issue itself isn't really that interesting. It's, it's an XSS in the description field of the repository. Uh, the drama pops up when it came to triaging the issue from a bug, a bug crowd triager. Uh, basically, he rejected and closed the issue, stating you were only able to do that because you were the repository owner, kind of implying that this is a, a self-attack, uh, which I, I might be able to agree with, except when you're talking about repositories, more often than not, it's a collaborative effort, which means... An owner could potentially attack other people working on the repo, even though that is probably an unlikely scenario. So There's after that, getting nowhere... Something that isn't clear is whether or not this excess was reflected onto just like the general repository page or if it was only here within this, you know, edit the description page. Um, they're, they only mention it as being on this specific like edit page. Uh, that said, if it's there, it seems reasonable to think that it might be elsewhere also, but I could also imagine it being better protected elsewhere. Yeah. So after getting nowhere with Bug Crowd, he reached out directly to Atlassian, and he ended up getting the issue resolved and paid out. Um, though this is a uh, forbidden by Bug Crowd, and he ended up getting banned for two weeks because of that. Um, admittedly, I, I've never submitted through Bug Crowd, but I never knew that type of thing wasn't allowed uh, bypassing the, the Bug Crowd people and going directly to the vendor. Uh, it seems strange that there's such a harsh punishment for that. But um, well, yeah, it's the same thing generally across, like even Hacker One and stuff. Um, the issue here is that these companies are reaching out to Bug Crowd, reaching out to Hacker One, reaching out to these managed bug programs to do that triaging. You know, they're paying them so that they're not getting all of the spam reports. Uh, so re going around them to the actual company is kind of violating the whole purpose of having that managed company, like having that management being done there. Now, in fairness, um, I I'm not sure how I really feel about that, especially when uh, you probably end up disagreeing with what happened here uh bleak asks what if you don't even know about them um so you can report right to the vendor like if you go through the vendor directly if you go to them directly from the start like you know fair game usually their page will actually just call out their managed version though 
Um, but if you go there, like that's usually not frowned upon. It's when you have a report open and you go, to, you just go around the triager, basically you say, I disagree with this triager, this person that we pay to do this, and you go around. Now, I don't know how I actually would recommend resolving this. Like, I get from the company's perspective, like, that's literally what they're paying bug crowd for. So I kind of get where they're coming from by having the somewhat harsh punishment for going around. On the other hand, obvious security issue gets ignored by that company. You know, responsible disclosure would dictate or being responsible about at least would dictate that you try and escalate it yourself. So, like, I'm not against them for having done that. I just understand where Bug Crowd is coming from. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I don't fault the researcher for going around them for this. But at the same time, if that becomes a habit, it's like everybody that has those fairly stupid reports then just starts reporting them up to the company because, oh, that might work too. Like, that's also an issue you probably want to avoid. So what I think is kind of dirty is the fact that if somebody reports something legitimate, like uh, it, it seems that's the case in this case, and Bug Crowd rejects it and they just close it and the issue never gets escalated, never resolved. And then that attack is used later on by some other like adversary. The company is going to take the hit, not Bug Crowd, even though it's not really the company's fault that it didn't get propagated up to them by Bug Crowd. So that's where I think it's a little bit dirty to to ban people for trying to escalate it when it's a serious issue. That being said, I mean, there is the, the thing you mentioned where people could abuse um, going directly to the vendor to try to get paid out for, for nonsense issues. But yeah, I mean, it, it does feel kind of unfair to the vendor that they could end up getting hit by something because of incompetency from, from a bug crowd researcher or something like that, right? So, yeah, like, I mean, I guess uh, kind of a compromise there would be like if they reach out to the actual company and that company actually agrees like, hey, this is an issue and they you know, accept the report, then there really shouldn't be action against the researcher for that. Yeah, uh, that might be a fair compromise to take on it. Um, I will mention they call out like a specific bug crowd triager. And yeah, you know, in particular, having a long history of abusing their position and loves to play games with researchers when it comes to reports. I couldn't find any evidence of that. They don't provide any evidence of that. Uh, when I looked up the name, it, I, the only comments I found were this actual write-up and a comment on this write-up saying they agree about this person. Uh, nobody else has kind of mentioned it, so I don't know how they know about the long history. Besides the fact that there was apparently an inside investigation into this triager. But again, they don't provide any evidence of that. So we have no way of knowing whether or not that's accurate. And it seems like one of those things where if you deal with bug crowd, then you, you, you kind of know. know that. But if you're not in that circle, then you're, you're kind of left in the dark. I too tried uh, looking up the, the person they mentioned and I, I couldn't really find much other than the, uh, the tweet for this article. So yeah um he does say as soon as i get more details about it i will let you guys know so we, we might see more stuff about that in the future but yeah i mean i think the, the bigger issue here isn't the specific person it's just the fact that this kind of scenario could happen um so easily i guess when you're talking about platforms like bug crowd so yeah i mean yeah, it's, I it's mean, another one of those issues it's hard to solve yeah and triaging is kind of a hard issue too oh 
I mean, with web stuff, it's a little bit easier, but I can imagine, especially like the guys at ZDI have kind of a harder time with some of the triaging. Yeah, reproducing and stuff can uh, cannot be a fun task if you don't have all the information and sometimes you just got unlucky. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll move into Zoom. Um, Zoom meeting connector. So there was remote code execution as a root uh, issue in the Zoom meeting connector web console. Uh, one of the features the web console provides is the ability to enable a proxy server and set uh, credentials, so a name and password. Uh, the issue is when it came time to sanitize those fields, um, because those fields actually get injected into a script that gets ran for the proxy script. Um, they tried to sanitize the field by checking for quotes, but they don't check for backticks. Uh, so when that set of credentials gets written into the proxy script, um, that script gets ran every three minutes as root. I assume it's probably something like a cron job. Um, and even though the dashboard states the proxy won't be enabled until server reboot, the commands still get executed as root. Um, it is worth noting Zoom has fixed the issue in the latest version, and uh, this was an issue you needed authentication to hit. It's, it's post-off, not pre-off. Um, that said, if, if you want to look more into it and take a look at the exploit code, there is a proof of concept provided. Um, while you could probably get a copy of an older version of Zoom Meeting Connector, uh, which is deployed as a virtualization image, um, I believe you need to be a business, education, or enterprise account to be able to get access to that, at least officially, which might be too much of a barrier, especially considering this exploit is rather trivial and probably not putting like not worth putting that much of an investment into to play with. Um, but the exploit code is there if you're interested in looking at it. It seems like a pretty straightforward issue, which it's Zoom, so I guess that kind of comes with the turf. Yeah, I mean, if there's this issue, I could imagine similar things elsewhere if that's the level of protection that they do, is just looking for double quotes. Yeah, it, it's one of those incomplete blacklist issues. Um, you got to have stronger sanitization than that yeah, admittedly, though, admittedly though when you're talking about something like passwords you do have to be a little bit more loose in your in your restrictions because you want like special characters and stuff to be usable inside of passwords uh, it's just that you have to properly handle them and, and in this case they just didn't all right so we have another post message issue uh in google docs uh this time in the feedback functionality so one of the things their feedback form allows is the ability to include screenshots of the page, uh, probably to help with the root causing bug reports and clarifying identified issues or pain points or what have you. Um, and they use post message to propagate that data over to the feedback Google domain. But apparently the final function responsible for that use uses a wildcard in the uh, in the URI parameter of the post message, meaning any domain could be specified there. Yeah, so um, just kind of elaborate on that a little bit um yep. effectively docs when you pull this feedback screen um so this is as spec was saying it's you're giving feedback to google this is there i didn't even know about this screenshot thing i've never i've never clicked to send feedback on a google doc before so it is kind of one of those hidden features but what it will do is it will use the google user content domains so it's like they're safe they're sandbox domain so docs takes a screenshot, uses post message, uh, and sends that to the feedback.google user content, which keeps it safe. It's done securely. And then that user content domain passes it back up just to whoever the parent frame is. 
Um, and that's where it didn't have the wild card restriction. Yeah, so that means the form data could be piped to any attacker-controlled domain, which includes that screenshot. Um, they also stated there was no X-Frame options header, so there was no directive specifying that the page couldn't be displayed in a, on a different origin. Which, so, for Google Docs, kind of makes sense. Yeah. So that facilitates the ability for an attacker to get screenshots of Google Docs documents and X-Fill them. So uh, this ended up getting a, was it a $31,000 bounty or was it a, I think. Uh, uh, I thought it was I just 30000 Yeah, I think it is too. Uh, I it think I have a typo here. Yeah, that's right. I have 3133. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, it got a bounty through uh, Google's VRP. Um, but yeah, just how many post message issues do you think we've covered on the, uh, on the podcast in our, in its lifetime? <laughs> I don't know, probably between five and 10. Yeah, Maybe I think that's a assumption. I think most of them right. have really been this last year. It's been a pretty popular um, issue through 2020. Uh, answering out of chat, isn't that the same UI as the rest of their feedbacks? Yeah, th this feedback thing is universal across a lot of Google products. Uh, but because you do need to iframe it as part of the attack, um, a, lot of, a lot of the Google products can't be iframed like that. Um, and for what's worth, like the write-up here does go into a little bit of detail about how uh, they kind of load the frame and change it out because you effectively have to change out the iframe from under the request. So after the docs has actually sent it up to the feedback domain, but before the feedback domain has sent it over to or has sent the thing back up to the parent frame. Um, so they cover a little bit of that. Like there's a few more details about this attack in the write-up, but the gist of it is because of that post message. Yeah. So moving into some more interesting issues, we have our 3DS issues. Um, so this is the first of two 3DS console hacking topics. Uh, the first one is an issue that was reported in June of 2020, and it was recently disclosed on December 18th. Um, it was the lack of a proper X509 certificate validation when connecting with TLS. Um, there's literally just no signature check on the cert, so anyone can just replace the cert. Yeah, uh, it's like more the... of a design flaw than a technical bug. <laughs> I like the way that the reporter does this. Like the SSL system module does not properly validate the X509 certificates. Doesn't validate Actually, it at all. <laughs> the SSL module doesn't check the signatures. I'm like, kind of, kind of frames it. Like, I mean, it's still a serious issue if it's not properly validating, but it's like, actually, they just do nothing. Like, they just don't do it. I, well, it's, it's not as easy as they don't do it. They don't validate the signatures, which is quite significant, but technically they still do some. They do uh, some integrity checks, just not enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anything that relies on the security of the connection can be broken fundamentally. Uh, some of the things they point out is you can bypass system update verification, uh, you can potentially install special edition titles, though they didn't test that, I don't think. Um, you could man in the middle, friend and eShop communications, and spoof connections to game servers, which can provide some new interesting attack service. Um, and this was a limited disclosure, so unfortunately we can't get into the back and forth, which I, I do like to do with HackerOne reports. Um, but we know it affected all system versions up to and including 11.13. Um, and he ended up getting a, a $12,000 payout uh, for this issue. Yeah, and so getting more stuff out of chat there, Bleka mentions that they tried before and SIG hacks happened, which um, was a 3DS spoof ROM exploit in the RSA signature parser. 
that allowed you to basically run fake signed signature on any of the consoles. That was in C uh, Talk, right? I believe, uh, I believe so. Yeah, thirty three C three. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Man, that was a really good year uh, for uh, for console hacking talks and stuff. All right, so our second 3DS issue is from the same researcher, uh, Mr. Enbeo, and it's a heap overflow in the MobiClip SDK due to not checking the number of audio channels in an audio stream when parsing MoFlex videos. Um, the reason this is an issue is the amount of free space remaining in the buffer is miscalculated. Typically, with audio, you only have mono and stereo, so one or two channels, um, but they don't actually enforce that. Uh, you I mean, could you, specify you more have, than two. You do have surround sound. Um, you do have the five point whatever, seven point whatever. Uh, so you do have more channels. That's it. I believe on the 3DS, it does not support surround sound. Yeah. Um, so that leads to a heap overflow. Uh, and according to the summary, it's a totally exploitable one because it was actually used to get remote code execution in the eShop application by chaining it in the previous issue that we just talked about. Um, so this one uh, gave a $3,000 bounty. Um, now, while we're still on Nintendo stuff, I did have some meta points I wanted to bring up. Um, these are the first set of reports that have been disclosed ever on the Nintendo bug bounty. Uh, they've had lots of reports, but all of them have been uh, hidden, uh, except for these. Uh, there's actually three. There's another one by the same researcher that uh, we're just leaving out in the interest of time. Um, but that was an uninitialized use in the eShop movie player, which also leads to RCE. So you can check that one out if you're interested. Um, the timing is a little bit interesting to me because you would look at this and think, you know, Nintendo is publicizing these reports. It seems they're trying to improve their stance in the security community. And uh, nearly a few days later, I don't know if you saw this, C, because it was right around the holidays. Uh, there was a leak of debriefing slides that showed Nintendo basically doxing and stalking researchers who were messing around with consoles. Um, I think I think the code name for it was like Belgian waffle or something. Uh, I will bring up the tweet for those that are interested in that. Um, but basically, it just there's there were some slides leaked, and they literally had like full uh, dossiers on like uh, key figures in, in the hacking community for Nintendo consoles. So it it's interesting that like the reports went public, and then right after that, uh, <laughs> it's shown how Nintendo basically got panned by the security community, and uh, and rightfully so, I think. Yeah, but, I mean, um, some of this, I believe, also happened a fair bit ago. Am I mistaken about that? It was years ago, that? yeah. I believe it yeah. was in, like, 20, 20, like, 12 or somewhere around those years. Um, but, yeah, it's it's kind of funny that you have this upswing on, like, the security stance of Nintendo, and then it just plummets back down when that leak happens. Yeah, and um, I'll also just add a link here off to, um, or I guess it's a duplicate link, um, but this was also discussed on Hacker News. Plenty of comments there. Plenty of discussion about it. Uh, yeah. So that link will be in the description. In a side note, uh, Nintendo has had a really, really bad year for leaks. Um, I think I don't think there's been any other company that's had as much stuff leaked as Nintendo ever before. Um, there, there were at least like, like three or four separate leaks of source code and internal documents and. Uh, especially with the 3DS. I think, like, the 3DS boot bootloader and stuff like that got leaked. Like, the, there was so much stuff leaked from Nintendo. It's, it's been pretty crazy for them this year. They they haven't been having a good time. That's well, for sure. leaked or, you know, trying to support the security research community. Yeah. 
So up next, we have a macOS kernel LPE bound by Kevin Backhouse and the six low pan code for macOS 10. Or, yeah, macOS 10. Well, um, so this was found by Alex Plaskett. Um, it was inspired by Kevin Backhouse work on. X yeah, that's right. Sorry, builders. I did get that confused. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so six low pan, I hadn't really heard of it before. It apparently stands for IPv6 over low power wireless personal area networks. It's a bit of a bit of a mouthful. Um, so yeah, I know what you found interesting about the story was the fact that it was discovered using CodeQL, uh, which was also inspired by Kevin Backhouse's post on finding X and U backs, uh, bugs back in 2018 when he also used CodeQL. Um, do you remember if we talked about that, actually? I, I, I don't remember if we did or not. No, I don't believe so. CodeQL didn't really hit my radar until it was something you could use against open source products. Right. Um, yeah, which was okay. with GitHub um, acquiring SAML. Um, so that post was before um, before that happened. Yeah. So uh, basically, he wrote a query to do taint tracking to try to identify sources of untrusted data going into memory move operations in the uh, six low pan subsystem. Uh, the, the query ended up giving him 15 results. And when he started checking through them, he found one that seemed interesting. Um, now, they do give some background information here on six low pan, which is definitely worth checking out. Um, I'm going to skip over it when summarizing this, though, in the interest of time. Um, but the issue essentially is there's a function to parse and unpack uh, 802.15 packet frames. When they do this, they use mbuffs for the backing uncompressed payload data and clusters of two kilobytes. So if you pass in a length of more than two kilobytes, it'll chain them together to try to accommodate for that space. Um, the problem is that the checks on the user provided length are insufficient. Uh, for one, the payload size is not expected to be smaller than the header because I believe they subtract it from the header size. Uh, and for two, the return value of the uh, frame parse function is not checked which means that header length could end up being greater than the payload, which isn't supposed to happen. Um, there's two different ways this could be hit. The first way is underflowing. So you set the payload length to one and the header length to three, which leads to negative two, which leads to a massive copy. Um, the second is an overflow by setting a really high length, which leads to writing, I believe, 40 bytes out of bounds. Um, and that second issue uh, seemed to be the most promising since the first way would be a massive overflow. Uh, you would need a way to be able to interrupt that, which might not be possible. I'm not sure. Although in Mac OS, it probably would be possible somehow uh, via like interrupts or something. Uh, and the second way, the second way is just more controlled in general, though. So it was easier to try to hit. Um, since you control the size of the write and the data, they speculate this could be turned into code execution. It didn't seem like they attempted to take it that far, though. It seemed they were just happy with the um, the prospect of it being potentially used, and then they just uh, reported the issue, which is unfortunate. I, I, I do like it when, you know, people try to take it to full code execution, but that can be a lot of work, especially when you're talking about a, a kernel. Uh, yeah, and it seems exploit, like so. you've got to deal with uh, KSAN here too. Um, so you're going to need something for, for that, basically. It's, it's just going to take a bit of extra work versus just finding the issue and reporting it. Yeah, poss possibly a chain of another issue, too, if, you, if you're not able to bypass ASL or anything like that. So, yeah, that might not have been feasible there, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah with, it seems like an interesting issue. With a 40 by read, or sorry, with a 40 by write, uh, I mean, there, there's a reasonable chance that you can get a read gadget out of that. Um, depending yeah, on what object you get own. there. Like, 40 bytes is quite a bit of an overwrite to get get something in there that you'd be able to get a read from. 
especially in kernel. Um, I did just want to take something out of chat or relating back to the Nintendo stuff. The Lotus Boot ROM was also leaked. That's a security chip for Switch game carts uh, from Balika. Yeah, that's right. That That's what I was thinking of. I think that was the most recent one, right? Like within the last month or so. Um, yeah, Nintendo's just... Yeah, they've not had fun with leaks. Um, jumping back to the Apple stuff, though. Yeah, I mean, this was a, this was a fun issue. And I it could be a fun exercise for somebody out there who is looking for something to do to try to turn this into a, uh, into code execution. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's a nice issue. And as we've already kind of talked about the code QLs there, I mean, I don't know, the more I've been working with code QL, the less I'm kind of liking it just because it's quite cumbersome when you start trying to do more complicated queries. It does have genius. some nice features though. Um, I'd still like to spend more time with it, but it's nice to see it getting used. And obviously there are some bounties for writing code QL queries. Um, so there's at least some incentive there. Like I don't think CodeQL is going to disappear anytime soon now, especially with GitHub kind of pushing it, Mozilla pushing it. Um, so it's it's nice to see uh, just something using it. Yeah, I mean, this this post definitely sheds uh, CodeQL in a positive light. Um, it it kind of shows how powerful it can be in finding new issues. So yeah, it was actually a little bit inspirational there. I I, I kind of got a burst of inspiration to look more into CodeQL, seeing how useful it was in this case. So Project Zero uh, put out a blog post, um, and it's called An iOS Hacker Tries Android. So interestingly, from the title, you might have thought that it was, uh, if you only read the first couple words, that we were continuing on the Apple train. But actually, the Apple train is going to the Android station in this post. Um, and it's interesting because P0 has always had a major focus on Apple, which they highlight in the intro and in the title. Um, so the post is about Brandon attempting to exploit an issue that Ben Hawks found and reported in the neural processing unit driver in uh, Exynos. I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Based devices. So especially when you're talking about uh, Samsung, some Android devices, depending on region, will be Snapdragon or they'll be Exynos. I believe Exynos is more in like uh, the European Union and stuff, and, and Snapdragon is North America. Um, the original bug was pretty straightforward. Essentially, when parsing uh, user shared mapping for session information, when using the uh, VS4L Vertex IOC graph ioctal, there's no checking on user-provided offsets, which leads to an out-of-bounds addition and also two other issues in the same code. Um, the second issue is there is a time of check, time of use issue on the shared mapping because the memory vector count is read twice. Uh, and the third is numerous other out-of-bounds writes through the memory vector count and offset fields. Um, basically, this code just seems to be super broken. Um, so Brandon decided to take the out-of-bounds addition um, and try to exploit that. He didn't target the talk to or the out-of-bounds write. When he was at this point, though, he had many different options and wasn't sure exactly where to go. Um, he ended up using the out-of-bounds addition to mess with the device address, which is an ion buffer, which is allocated with vmalloc, uh, where he wasn't too familiar with Linux kernel internals. Um, he wasn't sure what types of objects he could mess with in vmalloc memory. Um, and the reason for that is vmalloc is different than kmalloc. Uh, vmalloc allocates memory that's virtually contained contiguous, whereas kmalloc al ensures allocations are both physically and virtually contiguous. Um, so the objects that end up in those areas of memory will be different depending on what they need. Um, so Jan Horn and Ben pointed out that kernel thread stacks are also put in vmalloc memory. 
Um, so after using some heap grooming, he was able to corrupt the saved register of an internally blocked or an intentionally blocked thread using pselect. Um, and he was able to use that to get an uninitialized stacked read by corrupting a size that eventually gets passed to copy the user. So that allowed him to get the victim address of a stack and also defeat KSLR. Um, he then used the same issue again to trigger a stack overflow in the do select function uh, and corrupted a return address to get code execution. Um, now, I do want to talk a little bit about the code execution strategy because I thought it was really interesting. He essentially used a eBPF, which is the uh, extended Berkeley packet filter for those not familiar with that terminology. Essentially, he wrote a set of instructions and jumped directly to run a filter program. And uh, I believe the reason that works is when you jump directly to the uh, the run program function, it bypasses all the validation checks on the instructions. So this basically gave him a free arbitrary read, write, and execute gadget, uh, which I thought was a really cool trick. And it's it's a, it's kind of a universal gadget. You'll probably be able to use this in other uh, Linux and Android based kernel exploits as well if you're in a in a situation where you have code execution. Um, so yeah, this exploit was a cool strategy and had some neat tricks in it. Um, but what I also found interesting and one of the highlight was the differences between iOS and Android point. Um, he stated in his conclusion that he thought Android was well behind iOS in terms of mitigations. And uh, in his adventure, he, he kind of proved himself wrong there and found that the mitigation game was a lot stronger on Android than he initially thought. Yeah, I th I'm... <sighs> I kind of have to agree and disagree. Uh, okay. I haven't done a lot of iOS work, so I'm kind of sitting on the opposite side of this. No experience with iOS, a bit of experience on Android. Um, I, I, I guess the thing I'd say is that like the mitigations are different. Uh, obviously, there's some that are the same, but um, the other thing is there's there's a lot more that's kind of spread out with just the different manufacturers, um, like Samsung comes to mind and Knox and all of that. Yeah. Uh, versus just what's in the Linux kernel. Uh, whereas, or sorry, with iOS, it's a lot more centralized. That's it. I really appreciate the fact that he did talk about it. Um, kind of at the start there, there's just kind of the casual overview of well here's what i would do if if i had the same vulnerability on ios like i found that really interesting like this whole the whole write-up here like it's not just about oh uh, it's not just about the vulnerability but about some of the different thought processes about the different perspectives coming into it which i really appreciate that insight uh basically not having any experience over with ios it was interesting to see that for me yeah, I think they he talked about how he would normally use like uh, kernel task ports, which you have in, in macOS and iOS, and how he could kind of transfer that methodology over to Android, which I don't think he was... Uh, I, I think he ended up with a lot of strategies that didn't end up working out, unfortunately, but he still like realized how much of an edge um, the iOS research gave him in, in writing this exploit. So that was kind of cool that he was able to port over that knowledge, which... To be fair, is is usually the case in exploitation. Usually, when you're familiar with a target that's in some category that other targets are in, like if you're familiar with browsers or kernels, you'll be able to more easily transfer that knowledge to another target than somebody who's just coming into it. Um, so yeah, that's technically true when you're talking about the mitigations because Apple has stuff like uh, kernel text read only region. Uh, which Android doesn't have. They also have Pack, which I don't think Android has yet, at least. Um, 
But yeah, he said the gap wasn't as large as he initially thought, and he also stated that Apple's mitigations wouldn't have prevented this exploit from being abused um, if this bug were on iOS either. Um, he stated there were a lot of similar similarities with the out-of-bounds timestamp exploit, the OOB timestamp, um, and that his experience with iOS helped uh, abusing this bug, even though not all the paths panned out. Um, part of the reason I wanted to address that point that he made with um, his thinking about Apple versus Android's uh, security is I see the point that point repeated a lot with people thinking that Android is significantly weaker. And I used to be one of them at one point in time, to be fair. I think as time goes on, this is becoming less and less true. Um, the mitigation game, at least, is still strong on Android. I, th I think where Android has the weaknesses is more on the code quality side of things, especially from the vendors. Um, like, this is a vendor driver, and it is written like crap. You can tell just from the the vulnerability and the amount of issues that were found in just this one area of code that this was not, this was not fuzzed. Um, it was not reviewed. Uh, so I think where Android is still lagging behind an Apple and where there is a significant gap is in the code quality side of things, um, especially from the vendor side. But when it comes to actual exploitation and mitigations, I think Android is, is, is catching up fast. Yeah. I think the keyword there is definitely catching up. Um, Google kind of, you know, started off basing a lot of this off of Android or I guess technically or basing a lot of it off of uh, Linux, sorry. Uh, you know, so they're kind of stuck with the Linux code. And Linus has had a complicated relationship when it comes with the security versus performance aspect. And that has definitely been shifting as Google has had more of a stake in Linux. So over the years, you've definitely seen kind of Linux being pushed further in terms of security. I think because of Google's investment in that, and Google has been driving a lot of security investment, a lot of that security research on the Linux side of things. Uh, whereas iOS kind of started off where they had complete control over that code base effectively. Um, so they iOS kind of had the advantage there, but Google has been pushing Linux forward, I'd, I'd argue, at least. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting advantage that people don't really talk about with Android, too, when it comes to Android versus Apple. And that's the fact that uh, iOS is a lot harder to do vuln research on because of the fact that most of it is closed, uh, closed source. You have to do reverse engineering, um, which, you know... Is, is an extra barrier in terms of finding issues. Whereas with Android, not everything is open source. Uh, some of the vendor drivers and stuff are going to be closed source, but a lot of it is open source because of that nature of the Linux kernel. Um, you can go and find, like most vendors will have their, their forks or branches of the uh, Android kernel and Android user land um, on like GitHub or something like that. And you can just go and look it up, yeah, which is that... a major advantage in, in bone research. Even at that, though, like, um, even as something's different, effectively Android distributions, even as we have them being split up, like, Google has been pushing to get kind of all of the vendors together to have a better update process, to have more control over being able to, like, patch issues and get it deployed more universally. They're trying to solve the fragmentation issue. Yeah. yeah, like that fragmentation issue, I think, is the killer for Android right now. It is something Google is actively putting some work into. 
but it's also a really important thing. Like Samsung has some very different mitigations. Uh, Bleak had mentioned that they were the first to have KASLR enabled on their devices. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it still goes by the name Knox, but I know Knox has been a thing with Samsung for a while, possibly under another yeah, it's, name. It's but still there. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine they would get rid of it. I just wasn't sure if maybe the name had changed over the years. Uh, yeah, adding in a lot of those security features, and yeah, I think that's a good thing that the vendor could do that, but vendors have also gone the other direction and uh, doing very little in terms of updates and doing very little in terms of the security aspect. Uh, so Google has kind of been pushing, trying to make the security updates more important, need to be deployed within like X months and adding policies about that. Uh, so kind of tying back, Google has really kind of been pushing the security forward a lot. And while it is still, you know, behind, um, they've also just got some different options because of how effectively because of how they're architectured. Another thing I'll pull out of chat was uh, Balika mentioned if you gain root on non-system processes, uh, Trust Zone applet kills the CPU and reboots on Samsung, which is interesting. I, I never knew about that uh, mitigation, but it actually it sounds like a, a smart idea um, that you would have like a, a whitelist of a process that should run as root. Um, I, I I would wonder how you could actually get around that because that actually feels racial to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, it depends, Samsung, but that's my initial thought, is racing it. Samsung's, uh, Samsung's security stance is interesting when it comes to Android, because, like we're mentioning, they do have Nox, they do have that thing I just, uh, that Balika just mentioned. It does seem to be stronger than the others in, in terms of mitigations. It, it's also weaker, in a way, because we, we talked earlier this year about, uh, some of the Samsung security subsystems and this how vulnerability is written. a um, Samsung driver. Yeah, I mean, this issue is in a Samsung driver. Um, there was a security subsystem issue we talked about in Samsung earlier this year that ironically had really bad code in it that was basically a backdoor because I think they had like copy from and two user checks, which didn't even check the size that was passed to it. It was kind of a joke. Um, so Samsung seems to try to have stronger mitigations but it seems their code quality is is behind the others so it, it's kind of interesting where they, they they're kind of in a twilight zone i guess of security in android um that said we'll move on to our last security or uh exploit related topic i should say uh, of the episode which is uh zdi zdi has returned to the podcast with a post they published on the 21st of december uh, it is a vulnerability in the FTP CH root feature in the FTP daemon, which allows restriction of the file system, or as we commonly know it in FreeBSD, jailing. Um, so when a user attempts to connect over FTP, it'll check that the user uh, to see if it's supposed to be jailed. And if it is, it will change the directory to that jailed directory um, or to the user's home directory. The problem is if it fails to change to the jailed directory, um, it keeps the connection jailed and processes new logins. And why that's an issue is because if an attacker prepares a password database file, uh, like spwd.db, on subsequent connections, it will think that database file is the real root database file, when in reality, it's the attacker-controlled one in the jailed directory. Um, so if you set up that file with a controlled root password, you can re-log in as root and uh, eventually break out of the jail. Uh, the process is, is pretty interesting. Um, it, it actually kind of reminds me of the Ubuntu uh, root exploit we talked about earlier this year, where the process seems really weird, but when you 
when they break down what's going on in the process, it starts to make sense. Um, so basically, you set up a fake password database on the restricted user. You make the home directory inaccessible by ch modding the directory permissions to zero. Log in with root to upload the reverse shell, which is a modified FTPD binary and PAM OP uh, library. Yes. And then you log in on the restricted account and log in as root again, which executes the reverse shell. Um, sorry, you were going to say something there, Z? Um, I was just going to say, yeah. Um, or I was going to interject something that I just misheard you uh, when it came to login as root. Um, I just, um, I thought you had missed the one step there with the CH mod, but he didn't. So nothing to actually add. Okay, fair enough. Um, so the fix for this issue was relatively simple. They just had to close the connection if the change directory failed. Um, and yeah, like I said, I think why I found this most interesting was it really reminded me of the Ubuntu root exploit, uh, which we talked about in episode 53. Uh, for those of you who uh, haven't haven't seen that exploit, it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, where the process is a bit strange, and it's kind of a outlandish issue that you don't really see a lot, so... Well, this issue comes down kind of to that classic issue of an early return and not doing cleanup properly. Uh, which, I mean, is a kind of common issue. Um, I mean, usually we see this in the cases of, like, not cleaning up a buffer properly or having an index wrong or something like that, like leading into a buffer overflow, rather than this sort of just not cleaning up the ch root. Um, I, I found this, like, this is an interesting issue, I think, just because of that, but it is, it does fall down to that same fundamental issue of just not doing the cleanup properly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those issues where it's kind of a low-level implementation issue, like a silly bug that leads to a higher-level attack. Because um, the thing with this kind of attack is it, it doesn't require code. It's going to be like a, a reliable attack. That's where I think it, it sets itself apart is a lot of attacks you see nowadays when it comes to like, uh, like breaking out of jails or privilege escalations are going to be not 100% reliable. Whereas where it's an issue like this, it, it, you're going to be able to reproduce this um, pretty easily. So yeah, that's where I find it interesting. Yeah, and um, um, these are kind of more, in a sense, the higher level AppSec issues. This is where, like, even if memory corruptions disappear, it doesn't look like they're going to disappear too soon. Um, even as they add more mitigations, these issues are still going to exist and people are still going to write them. Exactly. These are the attacks of the future. <laughs> All right. So we'll move into our research topic. Um, so we have a paper on abusing the Linux kernel's uh, pseudo-random number generation or PRNG, to mount cache poisoning attacks on DNS, as well as track Linux and Android devices. So this is due to the fact that networking stacks, uh, the networking stack relies on PRNG heavily for things like UDP source port generation, um, IPv6 flow label generation, and IPv4 ID generation. So this paper goes into some of the background about how PRNG works, um, notably the fact that each core has its own state, uh, which gets seeded at startup and reseeded every 40 to 80 seconds. Um, they note that while the code is thread safe, as in another thread can't access the same core state simultaneously, it's not interrupt safe, uh, which is important for one of the attacks. Um, and while the linear feedback shift registers are updated atomically, the entire state uh, can't be updated atomically. So you end up in the situation where a thread and an interrupt handler can operate on the same core state. Um, so that's for the second issue. 
the first issue is actually a little bit more simpler than that, it seems. Um, it seems they just don't use cryptographically strong PRNG, even though they use cryptographically strong seeding uh, for the PRNG. Well, I guess part of the issue comes down to the fact that they're not using a cryptographically strong generator and it's information that is exposed out to potential attackers. Um, so the P random or P random underscore U32 for getting like a 32 bit number out of the PRNG in the kernel. As Spectre was mentioning, used by like, uh, or we've talked about a UDP source for generation before when we were talking about the sad DNS attack, trying to, or just with generally with um, DNS poisoning, uh, with cache poisoning, you try and predict what port, or you need to know what source port is being used in order to send your spoof message. Um, IPv6 flow labels give you about 20 bits where it just kind of uses this pseudo random number and just tosses it right out. Um, so those are places where an attacker could leak information about the internal state of the PRNG and a PRNG simply is not secure against many attacks. It doesn't have the same security as a cryptograph, what would be called cryptographically secure random number generator, CSRNG. Uh, so what ends up happening here is they basically just go through the case where you can obtain the state from PRandom if you're able to leak 113 bits from the same core. The same core is definitely one of the challenges here to actually get that. But the gist of the attack is just this. The random number generator is a bit weak for using with anything that's going to be public facing. Um, you're able to leak a number of bits at a time, like mentioned with the IPv6 flow, that's 20 bits at a time. Um, or if you're able to leak the source port, seems a little bit less likely to leak to me, but if you're able to, that's giving you more bits at a time. Um, effectively, you leak those 113 bits and it just becomes an equation to solve for the actual state. Um, even as it gets reseeded, you're able to figure out what that is just on the basis of how much it's shifted. It, Basically, once you've broken it, you've broken it for that core permanently. But as I mentioned, you do need to know that core. But the interesting thing about this attack is just the fact that you can use kind of you leak information from like the IPv4 ID field or IPv6 flow labels. Now, this is actually random is used all throughout the kernel. It's not just networking code. The networking code here that we're talking about, though, this stuff that an external attacker could leak. So an external attacker could say, leak some of the IPv6 flow labels, see some of that information coming through, and then use that to perform an attack against the UDP source for generation, um, effectively crossing, uh, crossing the different layers that are going from like IPv6 information, giving you information about the UDP source for it. Uh, which I, that's kind of the part that I thought was interesting about this attack. It gets into the math of how they actually figure out the seed and some of the problems there. Let's talk a little bit about trying to uh, make sure they're dealing with the same core as they're trying to leak the information. Some of those issues um, and different steps that they could do to make that a little bit more practical. But ultimately, I just thought the attack was interesting to kind of go cross-layer with leaking that information. Um, and there's a ton of other ways you can leak information uh, from all of the other areas that PRandom is used. 
I thought was kind of funny was uh, they said the amount of uh, cubed bit operations that they had to use for the linear equation solving was uh, 113 cubed, which is a very small number when you're talking about computers. They said this could run in less than a millisecond on modern machines. Um, now, getting into the second attack, um, the issue where the interrupt handler and thread are able to share the core state, on some devices, this doesn't seem to be like a universal attack. It seems, I think they mostly targeted the Samsung A50 was the only one they confirmed this this issue on. Um, but there eventually becomes a relative drift uh, in the linear feedback shift register. And that state ends up getting desynced, uh, which is used for the tracking attack. Um, though that does seem to be super device specific. Um, but yeah, I mean, these, these were a cool set of attacks. I think the, it's the first paper I've seen in a while that shows uh, attacking PRNG directly. Um, we always hear that PRNG shouldn't be trusted. You should use a cryptographically secure uh, RNG for anything that's sensitive. Uh, but you don't really see too many examples of that being broken unless it's like some toy implementation or some like seeding issue where they're just using time or using null uh, to seed the random number generator. Whereas this seems a lot more interesting and, and like a practical um, implementation of that attack. So. This is an implementation level issue um, for the second issue. Um, the PRNG implication and reseeding shouldn't be made uh, interruptible. They should be made interrupt safe. Then the tracking, I think the tracking attack wouldn't be an issue if that were, uh, if that was fixed. Um, but there is also the non-implementation and higher level issue of just not using secure RNG. If I had to guess why they don't, it's, it's probably performance reasons, I would imagine. I, I would imagine the performance of uh, secure uh, RNG is, is quite high. Um, so if you're doing anything in the networking stack and you want to reduce latency, you probably want to use uh, secure RNG as, as the least amount possible that you can get away with. Yeah, I mean, um, part of the issue is getting entropy for something that's cryptographically secure. Um, whereas with the PRNG, you're kind of working with at least the secure seed. So get the seed from a cryptographically secure um, and then derive a lot of entropy from that, uh, which is going to be quicker. It's going to need less information. Like, like Dev Random, I believe, will rely on some ex external information to generate the seeds or to generate values. Sorry. Uh, that yeah, said, like a full a patch was uh, deployed um, for this uh, with 5.10. Uh, looks like they backported it all the way down to 4.4.244. Which I believe the reason for that is probably because that's the lowest version still used on uh, supported Android versions. Um, like I think maybe Android Oreo or something uses 4.4. So that's probably why uh, that specifically is the, is the lowest kernel version that they have a patch for. Um, it, it would be interesting to look at that patch to see um, if they added... SR, uh, CSRNG to anything else other than just what was mentioned in this paper, but um, I didn't do that ahead of time, and I, I think that would take too long. Yeah, neither we did, did I. During, during the podcast, so maybe it's something we can uh, revisit, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think this was a was a cool paper and uh, was, was definitely worth uh, bringing up. With that said, I think we can move into our shoutouts. Uh, Z, I know you have two things you wanted to shout out, so I'll let you go ahead and then I'll, uh, I'll end off with my last one. Yeah, my first quick shout out here is I saw a post um, by, uh, let's just say, Michael B. Um, we've 
I believe we've covered one of his Dom Purify cross-site scripting bypasses before. Um, I don't remember for sure if we covered it or if I just saw it and then ended up covering something different during the episode. Either way, he's had at least a couple issues in Dom Purify over the past year, and we have definitely covered these Dom Purify bypasses. Um, so what he's looking at here is effectively one he proposes a mitigation to a lot of these namespace issues and like the mutation based xss uh within dom purify uh, and gives a good overview of just how some of these issues actually work and where the problem stems from so i thought it was an interesting write-off it's not quite an exploit so i don't want to cover it um uh, in that part of the episode but just as a shout out a lot of good information in it and then the second one that I had to shout out here was just a vulnerable KX, which is just a vulnerable by design uh, KX for iOS or macOS to basically play around with iOS kernel exploitation. Um, just intentionally vulnerable, few issues, easily accessible or easy to hit the issues to play around with doing some of the exploitation there. So just enables you to uh, learn a bit and play around with how do you actually start leveraging like okay you've got an arbitrary right but how do you leverage that um what's your exploit strategy to go from there um i i think it's important to kind of play around with exploits not just so i mean the write-ups are great but you learn a lot when you just take that primitive and kind of play around and see what you can do with it um so this just enables that I will quickly mention, in order to use this, you will obviously need to be able to load the kernel extension, which on iOS is a big ask. I think even, uh, like, I don't think you can just use any jailbreak because I think loading kernel extensions is, uh, like, checked by, like, TrustZone or whatever Apple calls the, uh, the higher uh, trust equivalent of that. So I think you would probably need CheckRain, which they do mention in the basic set of requirements. Uh, you need an iOS device that can be jailbroken with CheckRain. So that is uh, kind of an important uh, requirement that I just wanted to shout out there quickly. Yeah. So I'll uh, get into my shout out, which is uh, the, the PS4 7.02 WebKit and kernel chain implementation. Um, in the last episode, before we went on break, we talked about Synactive and their release of the PS4 WebKit exploit that targeted 6.xx firmwares. Um, at the time, though, they hadn't managed to make it work on 7.02 yet. Um, I, I just wanted to give a quick shout out that after some brute forcing and data collection, uh, Chendo Chap was able to write a 7.02 implementation. It's not super stable, um, but it has been done, uh, as I'm sure people who follow the PS4 scene probably know at this point. But for those who don't and uh, don't follow it super closely, I just wanted to uh, quickly mention that. Um, basically, the PS4 user land ASLR is pretty weak because it only uses the lower 32 bits of the address for ASLR. Um, with WebKit, you can just spray a lot of stuff on the heap and, and brute force it. So that's why uh, this implementation was, was able to be done. Um, if you want to know why specifically that brute forcing was necessary and some of the details around the issue, you can check out the blog post and our coverage of it. Uh, like I said, it was last episode, episode 57. It was around one hour and one minute in, uh, in the timestamp. All of our videos, by the way, we have timestamps underneath, so you can jump uh, to a topic if you want to refer to it. Um, but yeah, that was my last shout out. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in uh, to the podcast. You can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday after the stream. 
We also have our previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Feel free to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter. You can find the links at the bottom of the page or in the description of the video if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, we'll be back next Monday at the usual time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, and we will see you all next week.